Today, I have the awesome honor of speaking with a dear friend of mine and a renowned advocate for the truth, Seth Gruber. Seth is a professional public speaker focused on equipping Christians and pro-life advocates to make a gracious, winsome, and persuasive case of their pro-life beliefs. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, everyone, welcome back. It is an absolute honor that I get to sit with a dear friend today, someone that I value. He is um, a champion for the lives of the unborn and just brings so much truth to the issue uh, that is near and dear to my heart, that is near and dear to my family's heart, that I really believe should be near and dear to the nation's heart, which is the protection of the unborn, the innocent lives. And so I'm, I'm really grateful. I feel a real privilege that I, that I get the opportunity to sit with Seth Gruber today. He's a Southern California local and someone that's really fighting the good fight. And so, Seth, it's an honor. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's my pleasure. I, I love, especially when I get to sit with interesting people like you, to just let you talk. And so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to ask as little as questions as possible and leave you as much room to share because you're, you're the champion in the space. And I, I can personally share... Um, before I get just kind of letting you run, um, that I've just been really impacted by the work you've done. My wife's been really impacted by the work you've done. My listeners know that my wife is a director at a pregnancy resource center and does great, great work there. And you have um, been a trailblazer in this arena. And, and one thing that really frustrates me is that culture says that men are not allowed to have a voice on this right. issue. Right. Um, and I kind of find it interesting that if, you're, uh, if you don't have a uterus, you can't talk about the lives of the unborn, but you can compete in women's sports, which is interesting. <laughs> That's also, right. <laughs> side note there. But um, at the end of the day, man, I'm just grateful. I'm thankful that you're, you're here sitting with me. So, Seth, who are you? Um, where are you from? How would you get involved in what you're doing today? Right. Well, firstly, I'm, I'm not a bigot like you, so I would have never assumed that you don't have a uterus. <laughs> So, Thank um, you for not assuming my Yeah, gender. so that was actually very yeah. offensive. Yeah. I'm very triggered yeah. right yeah. now. Maybe Good we stuff. should restart the recording. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't really know what to say to your yeah. transphobia. But anyways, yeah. um, but of course, if, if men can't have an opinion on abortion because they don't have a uterus, well, then I just identify as a woman. There you go. And now the pro-choice the movement, minutes, which is in bed with the transgender movement, uh, is kind of... Uh, has to pick their poison, I guess, now. Are they transphobic or are they sexist? <laughs> so anyways, but uh, I mean, it's, it's awesome to hang out with you, Michael, and, and we have sort of uh, discovered each other, I would say, on the same sort of road yeah. and journey um, towards not just Christ, but really towards faithfulness, towards recognizing that a comprehensive Christianity ought to impact every sphere of our life. Amen, dude. And for these woke pastors that many of us have blasted before, probably me a little bit more than you, you're more winsome <laughs> than I am, like yeah. Carl freaking Lentz or Tim Keller or Andy Stanley, the list goes on and on, which basically say, you know, um, the church shouldn't be political. Um, we should just preach the gospel. Well, that's a truncated, compartmentalized faith that says that apparently Scripture isn't robust enough mm. to handle your political questions. Mm. Your, your Savior isn't sovereign enough mm. to desire for you to live out your faith, the belief in the risen Christ who entered human history in a uterus, I might mention, um, to, to pursue righteousness, to promote righteousness, and to withhold evil. Um, insofar as we can, sort of given current political realities. And so that's why I love and value what you're doing is really helping bring moral clarity, which ultimately uh, demands political responsibility. Yeah. Um, the left for too long has slapped the word politics onto their bigotry, 
because they know that these woke pastors are so afraid of the word politics that if they masquerade their pro-abortion bigotry, they're chopping off eight-year-olds' penises because he played with a Sally doll one time. If they masquerade these positions as politics or science, then they know that woke pastors will fold like a cheap suit because they're so afraid of having people in the public square, ding, 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 be told that uh, you're a political church. And as my pastor, Rob McCoy, recently said, we're not demanding our rights. We're exercising our responsibility. Amen. And so that, that's how I want to approach all of these conversations because it's not about us. Yeah. And for what I do, that's increasingly true, probably more so than any other movement. And, I'm a, and I'm, I mean, I'm a conservative. Like I, I'm, I'm about as conservative as you can get. And so I, I will join people on any battlefront to defend conservative ideals and to conserve something in the culture. But nowhere is that more true that we're not demanding our rights, but we're exercising our responsibility than the issue of abortion. Because the unborn child literally has no rights. Their right to life has been removed from them. And if you don't get the right to life right, Michael, you won't get any other rights right. Right. And this this was so duh to our founders that they used the word self-evident or axiomatic, or obvious. Uh, For Gen Zers, let me translate that for you. Duh! (laughs) We hold these truths to be duh, that we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are the right to life. Look, they put life first. So for 49 years this January, Michael, the left has been hacking away at life, which is the foundational building block of our entire American experiment, upon which liberty, pursuit of happiness, and property are built. So if a government can deny natural rights to one class of individuals, why not another class of individuals? If our government is going to ignore and trot upon and spit upon the natural right to life of the unborn, we cannot trust that government to protect any other right that flows from the first and most important of all rights. So good, man. So we should end abortion firstly for righteous reasons, because it's a genocide, even if we didn't get anything in return. But maybe for any libertarians who like to tune in to refining (laughs) politics and culture. There's a few. I love them. Or any uh, what I I call squishy conservatives. <laughs> Let me make this case to you guys if you're listening to this and you're kind of like a pro-choice moderate or maybe you're full-blown pro-choice, you should actually want to end abortion for selfish reasons, for, for purely selfish reasons. If you, even if you don't give a rat's butt about the life of the unborn in the womb, even though you're a former fetus, and as Reagan said, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born, even if you don't care about that life, how can you expect your government to conserve the liberties that flow from life that you love so much as a conservative or libertarian if they're going to deny the most foundational right yeah. of this entire republic? And so from a 60,000-foot view, that's why all of this matters. Um, and, and that's what I appreciate about you and what you're waking up the church to contend. Because I believe what Francis Schaeffer believed when he said that if the church can't speak out against something as evil as killing a baby, then the world has the right to ask whether Christ is real. Yeah, And so when woke pastors told us we couldn't engage for politics because it might harm their witness, right? They wanted their witness to only be associated with Jesus. I I say, um, well, if a witness promises to tell the truth (laughs) and God's people can't even speak the truth about life in the womb, then I don't know what kind of God you're a witness for. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Fascinating, dude. I don't feel that strongly about it. Yeah, I can tell. (laughs) Well, and here's the thing, you, you know, the left or even some of the, the squishy pastors that may think you're, you're being too contentious about this issue, um, why would you not be? We're talking about the lives of the unborn. If you actually believe, 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 believe at the core of your being that that life in the womb is a life with full rights and dignity right. that should be seen equally under the law yeah. and more importantly than that, 
equally in the eyes of God yeah. as a full person, especially because our Christ can resonate with that location Amen. in the womb, right? That's right? Like, then why wouldn't you be shouting from the mountaintops? Why that's wouldn't right. you be engaging in this? That's and so right. that's what I love is that you're, you're unapologetic about it. And I, I think that's the only way to do this right. conversation because that's you're right. either, you're either there or you're cold, but this sitting on the fence thing, it's not working. That's right. And the, the, the reason, the answer to that, Michael, is to, is to why are not people as passionate as I am? I, I believe I have a divine calling on me, but, but from a utilitarian standpoint, when you recognize natural law, why wouldn't more people and Christians be as passionate about it? Well, the answer to that question is actually in the last word of your podcast, refining politics and culture, hmm. because you see wa- uh, culture is to us what water is to a fish, Michael. It's what we swim in and it's all we know. And so for far too long, the American church has been more impacted, right, by the cultural waters that they swim in than by what? Than by their Christian worldview, than by a Christian liturgy. And the left has a liturgy as well. For the left, politics is liturgy. It's how they work out their religious beliefs, right? It, it's, a, it's a catechism, essentially. And so they've been more passionate about their liturgical approach to politics, what to promote their religion, leftism, secular humanism, Gnostic dualism. It's, 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 an, it's an alternative religion. They've been more passionate to promote that than Christians have been to promote Judeo-Christian ideals that freaking founded this country. Yeah. So then the church found themselves in this situation where they were being more impacted by what the culture thought about the unborn than by what God thinks about the unborn, mm. who was himself a zygote, an embryo, and a fetus. If so if that doesn't tell you what God thinks about life in the womb, I don't know what will, given that God became a zygote. Yeah. Um, and unless you want to argue, you know, woke Christian pastors that Mary had a fundamental right to abort God, um, then you ought to feel as passionate about this as I do. So that, that's the reason why. And so this is why you'll find many Christians, Michael, who fall prey to pro-choice arguments. Hmm. Because while they might espouse a pro-life position from the pulpit or amongst their friends and family members, when they're confronted with arguments that dehumanize the unborn and use the same strategy of racist to deny that the unborn is a person, they don't know how to respond to that argument. Why? Because they haven't been discipled to think biblically. And because all truth is God's truth, Biblical truths are just objective truths. Yeah. They don't know how to defend that objective truth in the public square. Ding, ding. Yeah, come on. Subtle so, plug. Anyways. Love it. That's amazing. So maybe we'll talk about those yeah, arguments. But Christians, Christians are confused by them. Yeah. So how much more so are just normal Americans who have no religious beliefs, um, and their liturgy is their iPhones. Their liturgy is television. Their liturgy is their woke college campus. And, and we expect people to fight for the unborn. Yeah, it's interesting. I do want to get into some of those arguments. I, I reflect on a story that I've actually told on this podcast before of a, a friend of ours that met a girl in her early 20s who was considering abortion. And one of the most shocking revelations that came out of this conversation is that she'd been deeply involved in a small group, a church community, for three and a half years yep. and yet was still considering abortion. And That's so right. this friend shocked and flabbergasted by that, asked how could that happen? Well, my, my pastor never talks about this. Like, we never even address the issue. I still yeah. am not even really sure what abortion is. Yeah. And so that's heartbreaking for me because I, I agree. I think that a lot of people that get duped into this really are duped. It's not a willful desire to be nefarious and intent. It's this real sense of being manipulated. And, and what's so heartbreaking is that when, thankfully, this girl decided to keep her kid, but when the stories happen where people don't and they yeah. actually abort and then they learn the truth 10 years later yeah. and they realize with almost a, a vengeance, why didn't someone tell me about this? Right. Like It's heartbreaking to watch. But I, I do, I want to get into some of the arguments. Um, I, I think that 
the pro-choice movement has done a better job of discipling young people yep. and evangelizing their killing of a human being yep. than the church has done at counteracting it and, and discipling the truth, right? So close. what are some of those, when you're out and about and you're speaking at churches, you're speaking at different events, you've engaged with people, you're not afraid to step into the public square, nice, uh, to engage in this debate, which I really appreciate. Um, you're not just, I, I've seen you really hold your own in, in um, really good context where there's the best arguments that the pro-choicers can come up with and you issue common sense in a way that's objective, right, right. it's biblical, and it also causes you to think and really ask yourself questions to where it's like, may, you know, yeah. uh, maybe the logic that I was uh, spewed from the manipulative powers that be in culture yeah. is not quite as logical as I thought it might be. So yeah. get into some of those two or three of the most common arguments you hear from the pro-choice position, and how would you go about refuting them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the fundamental question on the issue of abortion is simply what is the unborn? The, the science is very clear. The science of embryology. What's embryology? The study of the embryo. What's What's an embryo? A human being at a very early stage in their physical development. Uh, Pro-abortion advocates, pro-choice philosophers, and abortionists who kill babies have all admitted that obviously, yes, the unborn child is biologically human. So this old 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s talking point in the pro-choice movement, which is like, it's not a human. Yeah, clump right? of cells. Clump yeah. of cells. Yeah. That's, that's not as popular today anymore, yeah. in case you probably noticed. And this yeah. is because of the advent and, and increase in um, technology when it comes to ultrasonography, right? The child child's a human. I mean, come on, you can't deny that. Embryoscopy footage is actually where you now insert a small camera up the birth canal. Amniotic sac is clear, so you can see the baby, uh, Michael, at six, seven, and eight weeks. And this is when the, the, the supermajority of abortions happen. Most women don't know they're pregnant until four or five weeks. Earliest abortions tend to be five weeks, five, six, seven weeks. And you're seeing the baby's heart beat through their translucent skin because they're still developing at such an early stage. This has humanized the child in a way that, it, that the American public has never seen before. So this denial of the unborn's humanity is really hard to sort of up hold up anymore mm. to the culture. So so the pro-choice movement has kind of moved apart from that one now. And so they'll acknowledge, yeah, I mean, I mean, okay, it's a human being. The law of biogenesis states that all living things reproduce after their own kind. So dogs beget dogs, cats beget cats, a mother and a father, a male and a female, penis and vagina. Uh, yes, you're talking about a human being because their parents are humans. So the left kind of has moved away from that, um, thankfully. But they've actually moved to a more dangerous premise, Michael, and that is that not all humans are persons. Hmm. Now, they've been saying this for a long time anyways. They made both arguments for a long time. It's not a human, but then they'll simultaneously say, but if it is, it's not a person. It doesn't have the same rights as the mother. But what I'm saying is that the not all humans are persons argument has become the foundational fundamental argument now. It's what they put forward. Wait, Michael, is this the first time a government said that not all humans are persons? You know, I'm recalling uh, Any, I can't, I'm, I'm, I can't I'm recalling anything. a chapter in American history that was pretty problematic where yeah, yeah. there was a group of people through no fault of their own, that were stripped of their full personhood. Yep. Yeah, I feel like we've heard this before. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we could go down and down the line, of course, yeah. with genocides in different countries. Of course, yeah. Um, yep. Right, the, yep. the, the, the Tutsis, yep. um, the, yep. obviously the, the Holocaust. Yep. Um, they've done this with, uh, with women, yep. right, when they were denied equal rights to vote. Not, not in every circumstance did it lead to a genocide, but in many circumstances it did. The main point, though, is that every genocide has dehumanized their victim class. Yes, of course. And said that they weren't full persons. And yep. so the Virginia Supreme Court said that the black is not a person in the eyes of the law. Dred Scott, blacks are not persons. He's got each German Supreme Court. Right, 1930s, yep. the Jew is not a person in the eyes of the law. 1973, United States Supreme Court repeats the bigotry of Dred Scott when they tore the term human from person apart. So this is what I want your listeners to understand, is that 
for you guys listening to this, you'd probably never separate the term human from person. <laughs> we, we probably use those terms synonymously. Of course. Human, yeah. person, person, human. Hey, he's a great person. He's a great friend. You should meet him. Hey, yeah, my buddy, my buddy Frank. Uh, yeah, he's a, you know, he's a human. Uh, we would use those terms interchangeably. But the practitioners of genocide, Michael, have always separated the term human from person. Because if those are interchangeable, right, then the human that you want to discriminate against is just like you, a human. And so your bigotry becomes harder to argue for and justify to the civilization that you want to indoctrinate with a bigoted view of the victim class. Of course. If you talk about the victim class with the same language you talk about yourself, <laughs> right? So you have to separate the terms. You have to say, they're subhuman. Oh, untermensch. Right? To quote the Nazis, subhuman yeah. or non-persons. So that's, that's, so when we talk about these pro-choice arguments, we need to frame it in that context, that this is the depersoning of the unborn. And so, yes, there's the argument from rape, right? And I can just like fly through these, but I really want your, your listeners to get the worldview premise. Yeah, that the roots are approaching is good. We this, with, this right? Yeah. But, oh, so well, what about rape? That's what probably most people were waiting for me to get to, right? Okay, well, according to the Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood Statistical Research Branch, so not a pro-life citation. They say that about the, la the last percentage they did in study was in 2007. Half of a percent of the abortions that year were abortions performed on women who, ha who had been raped. So you're talking about a super minority of abortions. So then you ask the pro-choicer, oh, oh, you support abortions in the case of rape. Oh, awesome. So you're, you're willing to join me in fighting to end the 99.5% of all other abortions that aren't from the case of rape, right? And then they go, oh, humana, humana, humana. No, no, no. I believe abortion is a fundamental human right. Yeah. Oh, well, then why are you hiding behind rape victims to make yourself look compassionate? Interesting. Now, who really cares and is compassionate towards rape victims? You're using them as a human shield to disguise your bigotry. I support harsher penalties against rapists than the pro-choicer does. As a pro-lifer, I support life in prison or castrations for rapists. As you know, most pro-choicers oppose the death penalty. Most pro Choicers want shorter prison sentences, and they're the ones behind the policies that are that are breaking rapists from the clink before they should have been, and they're raping more women. Hmm. Abortion and rape wrong for the same reasons. Rape is intentional violence against an innocent human being without proper justification. There's no justification to rape a woman. She's an innocent human being. Why is abortion wrong? Intentional violence against an innocent human being without proper justification. Yeah. So if you are if you really want to be an advocate of human equality, you have to oppose both. Besides, abortion doesn't unrape a woman. It just adds another act of violence on a violence that she already had to encounter. That doesn't solve anything. So the compassionate position is to punish the only guilty party, the rapist. Now, as soon as you make that case, responding to the rape argument, then they're, they're going to say something like, well, yeah, but it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't have the same rights as a mother. So the, these popular arguments like rape, life of the mother, bodily autonomy, my body, my choice, these types of arguments, Michael, once you debunk them, they just bait and switch. Because they, they have no response to, to my very good responses. So then they just go, eh, well, that may be, but it's not a person. So like it doesn't have the same rights as a mother. Right. So the fundamental assumption that the pro-choicer has is not that abortion should only be allowed in the case of rape. It should only be allowed in the case of when the mother's life is endangered, which, by the way, is a pro-choice leftist yeah, talking point. You can yeah. deliver the baby early through a cesarean section or induce early labor, and that's safer than an abortion, even in a life-threatening circumstance. See, I just debunked it in 10 seconds. But th they're not going to continue to push that argument. They're just going to go back to their deeper, more sinister, fundamental premise, which is what? Not all humans yeah, are, people. are persons. Yeah, and so what happens then? What happens, Michael, when being human is not enough to ground your rights? If, if, if species membership in yeah. the human species, homo sapiens, being a human with a rational nature, 
Maybe that's not fully realized yet, but neither is ours. You know, my, my wife recently found out, Michael, that men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s. And she said, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so she's really holding out hope for yeah, me. Yeah, amen. You can ride on that excuse. So, so yeah. the, the, our, our, our fundamental funny. rational nature is, is what we have in virtue of being human, even if we can't fully exercise it in the immediate moment, hmm. be that the prenatal moment, the infant moment, or the teenager moment, right? But it, it's fundamental to who we are. Yeah. Right, we wouldn't say that a dog is less of a dog because he has a malfunction where he can't bark. Of course, but it's fundamental to being dog to bark, yeah. even if he can't exercise it in that moment. So even though we may not have a rational nature that we can exercise in the womb, it's fundamental to being human to have that nature. So their more fundamental nasty premise is that is that membership in the human species is not enough to have natural rights, namely the natural right to life. But what's the only thing we have in common? A human nature. Of course. It's, it's not gender. It's not IQ. It's not athleticism. It's not musical ability. The only thing we have in common with one another when we're walking through New York City around thousands of people is, well, we're all human. Yeah. So the question becomes, well, when did you become human? The moment of conception. The science is very clear. So when being human is not enough to ground your rights, Michael, the high priests of secular progressivism, the political elite, they get to decide which functional checkboxes you must meet in order to meet their litmus test of personhood. And until you meet those functional cognitive ability checkboxes, sorry, you, you didn't meet the bar. You didn't meet the litmus test of personhood. But who comes up with the litmus test? The people with born privilege, the people who weren't aborted. And it's the same bigotry as slavery, Michael. Hmm. Do you think that plantation owners and racist Democrats actually believed that it was melanin that grounded human rights? Hmm. I don't think so. Hmm. Because look at this. Oh, look at this. We have different levels of melanin. Yep. I don't see the exact same shade of skin color there, Michael. Yep. So what does that mean? Melanin or skin color comes in varying degrees. But what happens if you ground the right to life in things that come in varying degrees? It would follow that the right to life comes in varying degrees. Mm. So the albino rules over all. He has the palest of skin. And the darkest black man among us would have the least rights. So I don't even think that plantation owners actually believed that skin color was decisive in human rights or else they would be putting in place the premises that would justify their own enslavement. Yeah. Because an albino someone could come along. someone more white than they Yeah, are. albino yeah, could walk into a plantation and say, hey, white plantation owner, bow to me. Yeah. Work for me yeah. for no pay because I have paler skin. So look, even racists didn't actually believe their own premises. So what were they doing? They were coming up with functional characteristics or immutable characteristics and wielding them against the victim class that they already wanted to dehumanize, that they mm. already wanted to victimize. So these just became the woke functions uh, circa 1850 that were used to dehumanize one class of human beings. Well, today they come up with a new checkbox or litmus test of personhood. And for the pro-choicer, it's that the unborn is smaller, less developed, and because they're less developed, they don't have the same abilities we have yet. In a different environment, the womb, her body, and more dependent. Hmm. They're dependent on the mother, can't survive apart from the mother until they're viable, which means able to survive outside the womb. But the problem with that argument, Michael, is that we differ from one another in the same ways that the unborn differs from us. Let me say that again. The unborn child differs from us as born people in the same exact ways that we differ from one another as born people. Yeah. So if we can kill the unborn for being smaller, less developed, located in a different environment, and more dependent, then why can't I kill you because I'm six foot three? 
Why can't I kill my children because they're less developed than me? Why can't I kill someone just a little bit younger than me because they don't have the same cognitive abilities I do yet because I'm slightly more advanced? Why can't I kill someone in a different country or who's on my land because they're in a different environment? And why can't I kill granny who's dependent on life support? Why can't I kill some of our friends who are dependent, Michael, on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin? Or what about grandpa when he's on life support? Because like the fetus, he's dependent on someone or something else without which he cannot continue to live. So just like slavery arguments, if you grant the premise that not all humans are persons because skin color comes in varying degrees, or not all humans are persons because size, level of development, location, and dependency come in varying degrees, then the very arguments the pro-choicer is using to justify killing the unborn can be turned right around and used to justify killing the born. Hmm. And this was the point Lincoln made so famously in his piece, Fragments on Slavery, where he jotted it down, I believe, in 1854, leading up to his debates with Stephen Douglas. Remember the racist Democrat who ran against Lincoln in 1858 for the 1860 election? Of course, Lincoln won. And here's what he wrote down. He said, said, uh, it was in an imagined debate with a slavery supporter. And Lincoln said, hmm, you say A is white and B is black. So it is color then the lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Hmm. Take care. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a skin fairer than your own. Hmm. Uh Uh-oh. Putting in place the premises that justify your own enslavement. Then he said, but you say um, it is intellect, that whites are intellectually the superiors of blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Hmm. Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. And then he says, okay, but you say it is a question of interest. And if you, as a white man, can make it your interest to enslave another, then you have the right to do so. Uh, Very well. And if he can make it in his interest, he has the right to enslave you. So as soon as you ground the natural right to life in things that come in varying degrees, human equality is destroyed Hmm. and might makes right. Whoever can wield political power can dehumanize their victim class and just come up with arguments that they would not want used, wielded against them to dehumanize them, but they're in political power. They're not threatened right now. The unborn happens to be an inconvenient victim class because, oh, they prevent women from achieving full equality in the workplace or finishing college um, or it's just bodily autonomy. It doesn't matter why she gets the abortion. It's her body, her choice. And so the unborn is treated like the black was, property. Hmm. And they will wield these arguments to discriminate against the class of human beings that they already wanted to discriminate against. So from a natural law standpoint, that's why we have to call these arguments bigotry. We have to fight against them, if for no other reason than to secure the blessings of liberty, to protect our own rights that flow from the right to life. Because if a government can dehumanize and murder one class of human beings for differing from them, why not any other class of human beings for differing from the political elite? I, I just want to take a second and pause because there was, there was so much truth there. And I hope everyone really, really digs into those words. Go back and listen to it again. Because, Seth, what you just said is that virtually any pro-choice argument you ever hear is easily pulled apart with 10 seconds of logic. And so you have to bring it back to the root. And the root is you believe some people are persons and other people are not. And a lot of it just has to do with location. 
where they're located, convenience. I mean, it, and then now the, the even, um, to take it a step even darker, you have nations like Iceland that are eradicating entire right. populations of unborn because they have uh, a chromosomal defect and, and have, uh, and have uh, Down syndrome. Right. And then they brag about it in international media, saying we've eradicated Down syndrome. You just yeah. aborted all the Downs kids. Yeah, yeah. And right. so you're seeing the same arguments that Hitler used you're seeing the same arguments that were used in slavery used today. And I think it's so important because I hear a lot, Seth, that people, progressive Christians or people on sort of the secular side or even the people that just say, you know what, I just don't want to, I don't want to be involved. The argument they'll use is like, it's just another political issue. You're a one choice voter, voter. you're one issue voter, you yeah. care too much about this. But what you just said is this genocide is no different than any genocide that's ever happened in human history. And actually, if you're able to weed past those, those little arguments that fall flat on their face, you'll that's see right. that even the justification they use is exactly the same. That's right. And I, I think it's fascinating because, to me, when I hear, you're such a one-issue voter, well, first of all, no. But second of all, was well, that such a bad thing with what's that's happening? Right. Like, that's isn't right. this the one issue that yeah. we should, there's been 60 million people since 1973. Isn't this the thing, the hill we should die on? That's right. Um, how do, you, how do you get people from a place of complacency, Seth, to doing something with the truth? Because it's enough of a challenge to deal with those that are completely pro-choice right. that we just talked about who actually argue the opposite um, position that you're arguing yeah. and fail to do so. It's a whole other thing to deal with the people that know that you're right, and yet, what is it? Like yep. this complacency to sit back yeah, on the sidelines. Yeah. So how, how, do you, how do you confront that? Yeah, yeah, how yeah. do you invite them out of that place to take yeah. that stand. I mean, because the world will not be destroyed by the doers of evil. It will be destroyed by those who know better and do nothing. Hmm. Um, and I believe that was Einstein. Um, and, and for 49 years, the church has stood by on the sidelines and said that we're just going to preach the gospel. Um, well, Christ says before his ascension to go into all the nations, creating disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's it, right, Michael? Yeah. And then teaching yeah. them to yeah. obey all that I have yeah. commanded Amen. you. Well, all that Christ has commanded is summarized into two, by the way. Yeah. Love God, love neighbor. Amen. Is the unborn our neighbor? Yeah. Fundamental question. Yeah. If they're a human, then they're a neighbor. And that's what made the question of the um, lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan so offensive. Right? He turns to Jesus and he says, and who is my neighbor? Well, the lawyer knew that every human being was his neighbor. See, he was trying to create a class of neighbor and non-neighbor so that he could shirk himself of his responsibility of loving the neighbors that he didn't want to, hmm. or loving the neighbors that were maybe inconvenient to love. In response to that question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to that question. Actually, the lawyer asked two questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? Yeah. Probably the two most important questions any Christian could ask. And it's in response to how do I get into heaven and who is my neighbor? that Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Sure. Guy gets beaten up on the side of the road. He's bleeding. He's left for dead. He's actually, Luke's gospel says he's half dead. And two pastors walk by, a Levite and a priest. Pastors, they were probably anti-street mugging, uh, Michael. They were probably opposed to street mugging, like most of our pro-life pastors in our country today who would never actually kill the unborn. They're personally pro-life. The Levite and the priest were personally opposed to street mugging. But when there was a bleeding victim on the side of the road who needed yeah, your help, Luke's gospel says that the Levite and the priest walked by on the other side of the road yeah. to say, no thanks. So your opposition to street mugging didn't mean that much when you had the opportunity to save someone who was street mugged. Most pro-life pastors' beliefs against abortion don't mean much. In fact, they mean nothing at all if you won't even step in to save the pre-born. And these death camps, these concentration camps are in our communities and cities. Michael. And these pastors often don't even know where they are. 
So abortion is happening with the permission of the church, to quote Francis Schaeffer. So how do we put a fire into people's souls? How do we wake them up to end this? How do you do it, Seth? I would encourage your listeners to go watch my message at Calvary Chapel Chattanooga on Mother's Day. I gave a, I'll I gave post a, it in the link an abortion yeah. sermon on Mother's Day. Wow. Pastor Frank Ramsor is a real national treasure. He flew me out because Planned Parenthood was knocking on the door of Chattanooga. Chattanooga is the biggest city in the country without an abortion clinic. A bunch of Christians drove the abortion clinic out of town in 1993. Planned Parenthood just hired a sex educator and a community organizer, euphemisms, of course, in, in Chattanooga, of course, with the hope of using the radical sexual education to sexualize young people to create a market for unwanted pregnancies. That would be eternal souls who are scheduled for death at a Planned Parenthood concentration camp. And so he flew me in to rally the troops. What I would say to Christians or those who are pro-life, how do we wake you up? I mean, if you're not disturbed by what I've said so far today, I don't know if you will be, but I'll take it one step further. For the secular progressive movement, you guys, abortion is not just one issue among many. Abortion is not just a women's right issue. Don't fall for their language that they just want women's equality. Listen, if you're a Christian, and what many of you are, because Michael's very good at applying a Christian worldview to these political issues, for the secular progressive movement, brothers and sisters, abortion is a sacrament. Hmm. Abortion is the greatest sacrament of the religion of secular progressivism. And Peter Kraft put this better than I ever could when he said that abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words, Michael. This is my body, but with the opposite blasphemous meaning. So Christ says, this is my body broken for you, taken in remembrance of me, of the King of Kings. My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins and what? Eternal life. The culture of death says the same words, Michael. This is my body, and I'll kill whatever's inside of my body because a serpent told me in Genesis 3 that God doth know that in the day ye eat that fruit, your eyes will be open and ye shall be as gods. And a god, Michael, gets to decide who lives and who dies. A god is also entitled to eternal life. That's what makes a god a god, is that they live forever. So eternity is written on the heart of man. So the secular progressive movement craves what we crave, which is to defeat death. But they stole that from the Christian worldview, didn't they? 1 Corinthians 15, yeah. the last enemy to be destroyed yeah. is death. Yeah. But what they don't realize is that it already has been destroyed. Amen. Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, has already done that. He says, I, 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 I am killed. I die for you. I rise from death so you can too. The God-man who entered human history in a womb pays the price for our sins. But the secular progressive movement demands that we break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life, rather than accepting the broken body and shed blood of Christ for eternal life. And where do we do this, Michael? Well, we do this through embryonic stem cell research. We do this through fetal tissue harvesting and fetal organ harvesting. We do this through prenatal gene editing. Um, And most recently, scientists who are also behind the prenatal gene editing on babies and petri dishes, the same scientists are also creating human-monkey hybrids to grow them, develop them, and then kill them to steal their organs. What's the common thread between those four things? Embryonic stem cell research, fetal organ harvesting, prenatal gene editing, and, and, and human-monkey hybrids for organ harvesting um, to perfect ourselves to live forever. Yeah. Embryonic stem cell research, get rid of diseases. Yeah. Oh, your organs are dying? Yeah. Well, the baby's got some more. Take some of theirs. Yeah. Prenatal gene editing? Well, if we can perfect our genes, we can get rid of diseases, and we can live forever. Oh, just organ harvesting from half-human, half-monkey things? Why? So that I can live forever. (laughs) So for the secular progressive movement, abortion is a sacrament because a sacrament represents everything you believe. It reminds you whom you serve and who you follow. Well, for the secular progressive movement, they love and follow themselves. 
And if they can deify themselves into modern gods, then they can remake all of society in their own image. So I don't want to hear one more time from woke pastors that we're trying to use politics, that we're trying to create a theocracy. The only theocracy is the religion of secular progressivism, whose fundamental belief is not all humans are persons. Christians can either pick up the political tools that our founding fathers gave us in a constitutional republic where we're the sovereign and wield those political tools against the culture of death that has slaughtered 63 million unborn eternal souls since 1973, or we can lay down those political tools because we're too pious. And we just want to be associated with the gospel, the truncated gospel that you've created in your own image, which is ultimately a Christ you've created in your own image, which reminds me of what Richard uh, Niebuhr said about the the religious progressive movement, um, which is essentially that a, 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 a God without wrath enters a world without sin to save man without sin. In other words, it's a Christ you've made in your own image. Fascinating, Seth. My goodness. Okay. There's so much to unpack here. And I really, again, I know I just said this, but please go back and listen to this again, because I, you're bringing up so many, many good points that we could, we could rabbit trail on for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah, wish yeah. we had the time, but here's how I want to end this. With the 60 seconds-ish that we have left, Seth, what are you hopeful for? What, why are you hopeful? What are you hopeful for? Where are there positive signs in this movement, the pro-life movement, standing for life? Um, you know, I, I get to hear a lot of those in sort of the grassroots space with my wife. I, I want to hear from your vantage point, um, what, what gives you hope? The church. Cool. The church waking up. Winston Churchill once said that something is going on in space and time and beyond space and time, that whether we like it or not spells duty. Winston Churchill was not born again, as far as we know. And yet he's saying during a Holocaust that something is going on in space and time and beyond space and time. Well, there's only one who dwells beyond space and time. He who created space and time, who entered space and time as a fetus to redeem mankind from their sins. And yet Winston Churchill was recognizing that in these moments, we, we realize that we're spirits and not animals. And that something is going on in the divine realm beyond our understanding. And that that spells duty. That we have a duty to respond to these eternal happenings, these eternal urgings, which he said that, that pull man from their firesides to respond to impulses at once awe-striking and inevitable. That there's something going on and we have a duty and, and the church should be the ones on the front line of that. Because the church is the only institution, Michael, that can hold government to account. And that's why communist regimes have always targeted the church first, because they recognize that they represent the greatest threat to their political agenda. And so I'm encouraged by what's happening because I've spoken at more churches in the last seven months than I had in the previous seven years of my speaking career. Wow. I was booked at a church every Sunday for September, October, November, had a baby in December, every Sunday in January, February, and March. And then, except one canceled on me because I showed up and they said, you have to preach in a mass for an hour. And I said goodbye. And then almost every Sunday in April, and now I had to, I had to roll back because I was away from my family too much. Pastors are recognizing that that foundational, fundamental building block of life, to go back to the top of the show, has been being hacked at for so long by the secular progressive movement that now every other liberty that they've taken for, for granted is deteriorating, is deteriorating itself because the fundamental premise of the republic is deteriorating, that not all humans are persons. Well, then if we don't have natural rights, then how can we expect our government? to protect our rights. Are they positive rights or are they natural rights? Yeah. If they're positive rights, yeah. then they come from the government, and yeah. the government can give them, and the government can take them away because the government is God, which is what Karl Marx believed. It's what every communist leader has ever, ever believed. So this is a spiritual warfare. There are eternal realities going on. Will the church contend in spiritual warfare that masquerades as politics? 
I would hope so. So if you guys want to get involved to end abortion in your community and you're thinking, wow, what the heck do I do with everything he just said? Just go to lovelife.org forward slash America. And I work with Love Life to get a Christian witness rallied outside of every death camp in the country. Every day they're open, offering the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church that would result in an end to abortion and the orphan crisis. We engage politically. Oh, yeah, we do. But we don't wait for the politics to save children. We engage now in our local communities because today's councilmen are tomorrow's congressmen. And when we all at the same time seek righteousness and withhold evil in our local communities, we change the whole country right. when everyone engages locally. But all of that starts with life. I also host a podcast called Unaborted with Seth yes, Gruber. It's fantastic, by the way. We're all unaborted. Yep. So Amen. if you guys want to check that out, um, if you listen to two episodes a week for, let's, let's say, two months, uh, you'll be a pro-life ninja, uh, flipping around, demolishing abortion bigotry wherever you find it. So, thanks, Michael. I love that. That's amazing. Seth, thank you so much. Friends, thank you for listening. It's been an absolute honor. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thank you. Thank you.